0: Good morning. morning, and it's great to be back. As you know, uh, Christy and I have been in Australia, and we are very happy to be back. Let, let's be in a class of prayer, and I've got a whole bunch to tell you guys. So, Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are our Father and that you are God of love, and we ask that, that you'll send your spirit to enlighten us and help us share the truth about you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, one quick announcement, I will make it again later, is that next Sabbath, next Saturday, we're starting class at 10 a.m., we're going to end class at, t- at 11, and then we're going to do a special question-answer time for at least 30 minutes starting at 11, um, and you'll see why in a moment as we go into the class why we're going to do that, but just to let you know, if uh, if you want to be here when the class starts, it's going to be 10 a.m. next week, and then we'll be back to our routine time after that. So, uh, huge thanks to Simon Harrison who leads up our ministry in Australia, and his fiance Mani, who uh, helped coordinate a massive tour we were down there uh and did 31 talks in 15 days and he coordinated all of that and we were we took six in-country flights and all the different places we had to stay and so what's hard what hard work he did and uh, also want to if you've appreciated the remedy new testament uh, got to meet mira huber who has done all the editing and you imagine the, the editing job that that took? And Mira did all that, and we got to meet her while we were down there. It was so great to meet Mira and her sister. So big hello to you guys. And then there's so many more people I want to thank, but I'm not even going to try, because I know I'll forget somebody, and then somebody will feel like, oh, I forgot them, so I'm not even going to name all the other people, but there's so many of you I want to thank that were so helpful to us, drove us around, picked us up, uh, appreciate you all. So, you got to remember, we are in a spiritual war over these concepts, and and uh, when we left, uh, on a day that we flew out from Atlanta, there were storms in Atlanta, where our plane was delayed 45 minutes, and after we took off, within the first few minutes, our plane got hit by lightning, and it was quite frightening, it was like, boom, and this big flash, and the plane shook, and, and it's like, okay, and then we, then we just kept going, we're good, we're good. Okay you recognize the wrath of God, yeah. and then we landed in l a x and when we got to l a x uh, for for no apparent reason, they held us on the tarmac for forty five more minutes now we 're ninety minutes delayed and then we when we When we get off the plane, we actually running through the airport to make our connection to uh to Brisbane, and we made it but our luggage didn't, and, and so we arrived in, uh, in Brisbane on a Friday morning, spoke uh, Friday night, two programs on Saturday, and then uh, we're leaving at uh, 9 a.m. on Sunday morning for our next venue, and our luggage arrived at 8 a.m. on Sunday morning, so we got it an hour before we went to our next venue, or it had been chasing us, because we were, we were moving every two days, basically, while we were there, but thank the Lord we got our luggage. Also, while I was there halfway through the tour, I got a food poisoning or some GI bug. So I was nauseated for seven days and could hardly eat. And so I, I'm telling you that because I want to tell our friends in Australia, if you came up to talk to me and I was kind of like not real engaging, um, uh, it wasn't that I, 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 I not only was jet lagged, I was sick for seven days. And so, but every time I got up to speak, the nausea went away. And then, then when I was done, I was like, oh, here comes again. <laughs> so, so the Lord was with us, and we had a great time. Uh, so just to give you a, a clue of what we did, we arrived on Friday, February 22, in Brisbane, and we spoke at the Gold Coast uh, SDA Church on Friday evening. And then on Sabbath morning, we did Springwood uh, Church, and then Sabbath afternoon, we did Eight Miles Plains. We were over there. And then Sunday, we went to Toowoomba, where we spoke at the Park House Cafe, which was really an interesting um, and nice program. And then we went on up and spoke at, at Cairns, and then we were to Adelaide, and then we were at Corumbong Korn- in Avondale, and then the Sydney Adventist Hospital, and then Perth uh, for the uh, Livingston SDA Church and the Christian Counselors Association of Australia, and then back to Melbourne at uh for our final weekend. So every couple of days, we were... The presentations that we did while we were over there were uh, Recovering from Sexual Abuse, The Mind God's Design, What Went Wrong, The God-Shaped Brain, The Seven Levels of Moral Development, The Science of Belief, which is the quantum uh, stuff and how our our, uh, beliefs actually affect outcomes. Neurobiology of depression and drug-free treatments, addiction in the adolescent brain, healthy love versus love addiction, uh, the developing brain, the aging brain, domestic violence in the Christian home, plus I taught two Sabbath school classes and uh, multiple Q&A sessions. We were busy. (laughs) We were so positively received, though. I want you guys to know, I have a huge following. People came up to us at every venue telling us that they watch this class every week and it's changed their lives. Many, many said to tell you guys that come to our class hello and how much they appreciate you and the questions you ask when you're here in class. Mm-hmm. Too many stories to recount, but I've got some I want to share. Uh, one of the venues, a young man in his late 20s came up to me and said how he'd been an atheist his whole life, but he found us happenstance online and began watching our materials and he has now given his heart to the Lord and believes in God. Uh, A lovely gentleman and his wife drove over five hours to come to one of our programs and told me that they're Christians, but not Seventh-day Adventist Christians. And coming across our material online, they've read all my books and watched our videos, and they both just talked about how much happier and healthier their lives are applying these principles. At another venue, a woman in her 70s came up to me and told me that she's been a lifelong Adventist, Uh, uh, a pastor's wife but had become so discouraged with Adventism, she was actually thinking about leaving the church when she came across our material. And with tears in her eyes, she grabbed my hands and squeezed my hands, and, and smiling, she said that, that this message has just completely brought her back into love with the Lord. And uh, and how much, am I, how much happier she is. One lady came up to me and said that she... Um, Was in the SDA church her entire life, but had so many things that didn't make sense in the way she believed. She was really struggling, and she came across our materials and started reading and listening, but she was afraid because she was hearing and listening to things that contradicted so many things she'd been taught her whole life, and and she didn't want to get deceived, and so she was really stressing and worrying about what's the truth, what's the truth. And she started praying to the Lord, and she studied more about what we're doing, and she got more stressed, and she was calling out to the Lord one night, and she said she heard the voice of God just say to her, You asked for the truth. This is the truth. And she said she's had such peace and happiness in her life since. Uh, after my talk on the science of belief, which talks about the quantum entanglements and God's creation of the infinitely small things and how everything is connected through these quantum strings that uh, connect the universe, a woman came up to me and said that she'd never believed in God. But she had this experience where God gave her this perception about how all things in the universe are connected. And hearing, uh, and, and when she had that per, uh, experience, she knew that God was real and she gave her heart to him. And that's why she came up and said, she knew what I was speaking on was true. Because she'd already had that prior to coming. In Melbourne, a Baptist pastor came up uh, to uh, after the meeting and stopped and told us how much he appreciated the message. And he asked for copies of all of our material that we were giving away because he wants to share it in his church in Melbourne and then this email came in or this message online was posted on our, our facebook page thank you for the uh to come and reason thank you for your ministry and visit to nutta victoria australia it is helping my family members who stopped worshiping god many years ago get a new fresh positive perspective of god and his character May God continue to bless you as you share the good news of a loving creator-designer, God, around the world. And our last stop in Melbourne was such a positive experience. We were at the uh, main church there at Nuttawading, and uh, this is at the conference headquarters there. It was a holiday weekend, and they actually weren't expecting very many people because it was a federal holiday for them and people were on vacation. But they ended up uh, having... Standing room only, opened up a bonus room, standing room, people were actually standing and sitting out in the hallways for our programs. Uh, They had such an attendance, the uh, leadership was just actually stunned. And I received a couple of uh, emails when I got back. Here's one of them. Dear Tim, we wish to pass on to you and your team our deep appreciation for your fabulous presentations at Nutterwadding SDA Church last Friday night and Sabbath. Chris and I are familiar with your YouTube Sabbath School classes, as well as your books and DVDs, but it was such a pleasure to hear you once again in person. I had the pleasure of meeting you and to be in your audience in New Zealand Conference. That was in 2015. The content last week was so relevant and illuminating and is helping uh, both of us understand more of the Father's plan and the unbelievable and extraordinary life and sacrifice of Jesus. I know from many others that I have spoken with since, others with Others we deeply respect for their commitment to God, that they too felt the Holy Spirit moving and feel so encouraged to continue to dig deeper and explore both scripture and the writings of Ellen White. For us I am thinking most of the of the many people who attended and have that having come and reason ministries attend our church was such a blessing. It was so inspirational, and we are grateful for your study, your commitment, and your willingness to travel to the other side of the world and head to Melbourne after what must have been an exhausting tour. Could you also kindly pass on to your wife, your team, and all involved, our appreciation and grateful thanks. And then this uh, letter and a uh, card was addressed to, to the whole class here. I'm emailing from Melbourne a big thank you to... You all for sharing Dr. Jennings with us here in Australia these past weeks. We were blessed to hear him speak today and last night. We managed to sneak in a very quick hello to thank uh, t- uh, and thank you to Tim, but was mindful of his time. We really want to do what we really wanted to do was ramble on and on about the difference common reason has made to everything since uh, discovering you on YouTube about a year ago. This message is exciting. Thank you for what you are doing to uh, get God's true character out there. Well done to the ladies teaching in Dr. Jennings' absence. We have very much enjoyed listening to them. And then, this card was given to us at our last stop, and it's addressed, um, College of Sabbath School class. <laughs> and so you got a koala bear, or a koala, not a bear. It says, uh, to the College Courthouse Sabbath School class, uh, hi to all. Just a note to encourage and thank you. Thank you to Lori, Linda, Russell, and Wendell uh, for your unique presentation styles. Thank you uh, to the wider class for the great questions. We keep. Uh, we wish we were there to ask. Keep questioning more. We really enjoy the interaction of the class and look forward to watching each week. Uh, hooray! And God bless from the land down under in um, Franklin SDA Church. So. And also to our Australian friends who are watching, um, we are in the final stages of receiving a not-for-profit status in Australia, so check with Simon at Australia at com for when it's finalized. All the paperwork's done, just in at the government office, waiting for the government office's stamp on that, so whenever that comes, that, that will be available for you guys down under. So class, we are doing the last lesson in the book of Revelation, I Make All Things New, uh, Lesson 13. Just think about what are made new. I make all things new. Certainly the earth, all the physical things, mountains, trees, waters, animals. Do we get new hearts? No. Why would we get a new heart? Uh, I mean, not a new, character. A, character, right? a, character. Right. a new character. We're not talking about a pump in the chest. No. Okay, we're talking about new character. Do we get new character? No. you no. anything we can take with The question maybe was a little ambiguous. <laughs> So when we come to Jesus, do we get a new heart? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So we do get a new heart. No, we get a new before we go to heaven. So Tina's jumping to the, to the question. The question is, when do we get a new heart? Okay. Not do we get one. When do we get one? And she's right. We, we, do we get a new heart at the second coming, or do we get a new heart before the second before, coming? Before. Yes. So, so w- would getting a new heart mean that we are set right with God in our hearts? Before the second coming or at the second coming? Before the second And what's another word with setting someone right? What's another word? Justification. Justification. So do we actually get justified, set right, new heart, before the second coming? Or are we just declared to be set right, justified? But we really aren't. No, (laughs) we get it right before. You see, that's the penal substitution lie. The penal substitution lie cheats people from actually having a new heart and right spirit. Because it tells them that justification is being declared that you're right even though you're not. But the real message of God is that you do get a new heart and right spirit, and you get that now. First paragraph in the lesson, it says, The destruction of the end Babylon is a bad news for those who collaborate with the apostate religious system. For God's people, however, it is good news. Babylon was responsible for inducing the secular political powers to persecute and harm them. The destruction of this great adversary means deliverance and salvation for God's faithful people. It says that Babylon induces, this is a lesson in the Babylon induces secular powers to persecute. What, what does that sound like it's suggesting is the problem? There was a sellout to Constantine at the Council of Nicaea where the church and the state merged. I think that's what it's talking about. So is responsible for inducing the secular powers to persecute and harm them. Is it sounding to you like like the problem here is some type of a physical conflict? Persecuting, imprisoning, burning at the stake, those types of things? Hmm. What kind of war does Paul say we're in in 2 Corinthians 10? We live in the world, we don't wage wars. the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, we demolish arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. Is Babylon's primary attack on the saints, a physical attack. No. History uh, tells us that it has been at times. The primary attack. Or were the physical attacks merely manifestations of ways to corrupt minds? Right. Induce fear, for instance, to get people to compromise their real heart's loyalties. So was the real attack against the body, or was the real attack always against the mind and heart? Mm-hmm. Those methods were used, as you're pointing out for sure but when we focus on that Babylon was responsible for inducing secular powers to persecute I don't disagree that that happened historically but do we miss by focusing on that the real war which is going on here coercion was like a tool of last resort if you couldn't convince someone in any other way inducing them by by bribery or, or convincing them by logic uh Coercion was the like the tool that was then used. If you, if you won't agree with this, we'll make you do it. So this is Satan's method. First method of Satan is his first approach is lies, lies, always deceit. Christ's temptation when he tempted Christ in the wilderness, he approaches him with deceptions and lies. Then the next deception that you pointed out just now is inducements, bribery. Hey, I will give you all these lands and all this power if you'll follow me. And the third one, if we're not deceived, and we're not bought off, then the third one is coercion. coercion. They crucified him. This, this, is the, this is the way the devil always works. Deception, bribery, coercion. These are the ways of the beast. This is the beastly system, the beastly method. Now, how could, as we look at the end of time, how could the devil get Christian people who put their faith in Christ, who claim their loyalty to Jesus, to actually cooperate with state powers to use coercive methods on others. What issues might be involved? C- c- I'm going to throw out some I've heard. Climate change and to save the earth. Pass laws uh, to uh, have one day of rest a week to reduce carbon emissions. Would this really be part of the beastly system? no. Because it would be no different than the laws to get your cars inspected for emissions or any other laws on uh, in, on water cleanliness or anything else as long as there's no worship involved. If it's simply that this is an environmental protection act and we're going to have laws that restrict certain behaviors you can take to protect the environment, but there's no religious and worship, envi- uh, 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 worship elements attached, then it is not a matter of conscience anymore. In the same way, we have laws on recycling things, laws on power plants emissions, laws that you get your car inspected, and, we, and, and it's enforced by punishment, fines and other things if you don't follow the laws. But none of that is part of the beastly system. But if they made it that you couldn't do anything, you couldn't drive your car or anything on a Saturday, that's the only day that they made that you couldn't do anything. Couldn't so, so they would make the whole world rest on the Sabbath, and you would oppose that? I'm not talking about and I'm talking about they wouldn't let you go to church or anything. You couldn't go to work either, so nobody can work on Sabbath. You'd oppose that? Well, they could be out mowing the lawn. And no, because they can't use their little engines unless they're using the kind that they have the blades that just spin like in the 50s. Okay. <laughs> <I> still- <laughs> See, the point is, this is, if it's just about carbon emissions and pollution, don't get tricked. into. It has to have some element of worship involved, some element of your conscience involved in order for it to be part of the beastly system. Does that make sense? States pass laws all the time on various things of environment. All the time. What about laws regarding marriage and abortion? Could these be avenues that Satan could use to get good Christian people to seek to enforce their beliefs on others by using the power of the state? You understand? I think it's wrong. I don't think we should be using the power of the state to enforce the conscience. So, so this, is not a, this is not a discussion about whether you think certain forms of marriage are right and certain forms of marriage are wrong or whether abortion is right or, or abortion. It's not a discussion about that. It's a discussion about regardless of where your belief is on those issues, should we use the power of state to force other people to practice your beliefs? No. That's the question. Could Christians be duped into participating in coercive methods to enforce their beliefs on these issues on others. There already have been. (laughs) There already have been, she said. Yes. I believe that also fear plays a part because of the major number of calamities that are occurring. They'll say, well, God is removed and he's cursing us, so we need to appease God and keep all his laws, including Sunday." So you're raising another possibility, a Sunday law, as a possibility. Yeah, because, like I said... Which is a historic Adventist perspective that many Adventists have taught. There'll be a law that comes along, and they'll pass a law. Uh, you know, my view on that is it's possible, but it's not... We shouldn't, we shouldn't lock ourselves into that. There, there are many... See, the Adventist church historically, in the, in the 19th century, took a very strong view that that was what was coming. And if you read uh, the historic Adventist documents, in 1888, a message came, which is the healing gospel that we're teaching, uh, that was followed up by legislative activity in our Congress, and this is all a matter of historical record, where legislation was put into the Congress to pass Sunday legislation for religious observances in the 1890s in our country. And Ellen White describes that all heaven was geared up for the second coming to happen, but this church... Apostatized by rejecting this healing gospel and embracing penal substitution instead, going down the legal imperial model. And therefore, they rejected the, the, the final message from the Holy Spirit, and heaven had to delay. So it's potentially, if you understand how tribal prophecy works, the whole Saturday Sunday issue may never actually come to fruition again in the future. Because it may have been a, um, one of those, um, conditional prophecies like you read about Israel in the Old Testament that we never filled our role at that time, and now Satan has got a new strategy to get the same method. And so what I want people to understand, and I'm not saying it couldn't be that. It could be. It still could. But I think we miss the boat when we absolutely go out and insist it can only be this mechanism. We really need to watch for the method, not the specific way the method is enforced. And the method is coercing people with state power to comply on conscientious issues of religion, no matter what that issue is. So one possibility is what you're saying, and I, I still I'm open to it. And, and if it happens, I will be the first to say, you know what? It's wrong for the state to coerce people to go to church on any day of the week. And if the church and the state came along and say, well, let's have people go to church on Saturday, and if they don't, they'll get punished. We should oppose that. That's wrong. Okay. So I, I just want people to be thinkers. Thinkers. Don't get stuck because there's some strong language about that. So, the lesson points us to the fifth seal of Revelation, chapter 6. and I just want to read you this fifth seal. He opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was... was given a white robe and were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who had been killed, who were to be killed, as they had been was completed. What do you hear happening here? Did you hear in this seal the investigative judgment and the historic Adventist sanctuary message? And for those who aren't Adventists, there's only one doctrine in the Adventist church that only the Seventh-day Adventist Christians hold, that no other Christian group holds. Every other doctrine amongst the doctrines of the Adventist church, some other Christian group also believes it the same way. But the only doctrine the Adventist church holds that no other church currently holds is the doctrine of the heavenly sanctuary and the investigative judgment. It's unique to the Adventist church. Well, notice in the, in the, in the seal, there is an altar that's Bible symbolism. Where does the Bible symbol place, locate us if there's an altar there? Sanctuary. Sanctuary. The heavenly sanctuary. So this seal places us in the heavenly sanctuary, symbolically speaking. It focuses our attention on the work of Christ in the sanctuary. And notice what's under the altar. Souls are under the altar. What does this mean? Do we read this through the human imperial law lens? Do we think design law, how God built reality, and some reality-based going on here? It is taught in the historic Adventist view because of what the post-1888 rejection of the healing view and the embracing of the penal view, the Adventist church has gone down the trail of teaching God's law functions like human law, and therefore, the investigative judgment is a legal process in which record books are being opened, in which deeds are being evaluated, in which punishments are being determined. And, and if you've accepted Jesus, then he paid the punishment, and that legal punishment gets applied to a record in heaven, and the record of the deed gets erased out of a book somewhere. This is a historic view. And you get human souls crying for human vengeance. And human souls crying for human vengeance, yeah. Let's consider, though, briefly from the Bible... Where do the dead go when they die? What we call dead, first death stuff. Where, where do they go? Do, do they return to dust or dirt? Do, do they go to God? Do they go to heaven? Or do they do all three? So it says in the Bible that we are tripartite. We have three parts. We're body, soul, and spirit. Is it possible that at death, one part of the human being goes to dirt, one part goes to God, and one part goes to heaven. Well, use the metaphor of a computer for a moment. A computer has three parts. Hardware, software, and energy, electricity. And, and all three are required to have an operational or functioning computer. If you have just two out of any of those three, put them in any combination, but only have two, is your computer operational? No requires three to be operational. Likewise, to have a functioning, living human being, you have to have a body, you have to have a soul, and you have to have a spirit. Now, the Greek word for body is soma, which is simply the physical m- machine that we live in, and um, it is analogous to a computer's hardware, the computer's machine. But the Greek word for spirit is panuma, from which we get pneumonia. It means breath, or wind, or breath of life, which is analogous to the computer's energy source, the life energy. And the Greek word for soul is suke, from where we get psyche, as in psychiatry and psychology. And it means your unique personhood, your individuality, your identity, analogous to a computer's software. Now, if your computer runs out of power, into what state does it go? It sleeps. sleeps. And how does the Bible describe those whose bodies run out of power? They sleep. That's exactly right. Awaiting the resurrection. So, with this in mind, we can answer a couple questions. The first death, the body returns to dust. Genesis 3.19, Psalms 44.25, Ecclesiastes 3.20. Very clear, the body returns to dirt. Dust. Decays. And we've all seen that. If you go into a graveyard or whatever, uh, or a uh, archaeological dig. The spirit, which is the life energy, breath of life, Ecclesiastes 12.7, returns to God who gave it. First law of thermodynamics, energy is neither created nor destroyed, but conserved. So when the energy is no longer being utilized in our bodies, that life energy is conserved and returns to God who gave it. He's the source of life. But what about the soul, the psyche, the individuality, the software, the unique personhood? Well, if someone stole your laptop, and they're threat- threatening to destroy it unless you pay a ransom price, but you have the entire thing backed up on a cloud, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let, that, let that breathe. Yeah. Might you say, I'm not afraid of the one who can destroy my laptop, but can't destroy my software. In Matthew 10.28, Jesus says, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy your body, but can't destroy your soul. Matthew 10.28. Now, why is it that destroying the body cannot destroy the soul? Why is it? There's a reason. Because they're separate and distinct. They're not the same. Your body is not your soul. The hardware on your computer is not the software on your computer. They're distinct. So the question still remains, where then does the soul go? When the body turns to dust, the breath of life goes back to God, who gave it. Where does the soul reside? Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that to be absent from the body is to be (laughs) present with the Lord. Hmm. So, could our identities, our souls, our unique personhoods, our individualities actually be stored in heaven on the heavenly servers that the Bible calls the Lamb's Book of Life? Well, I'll read you something Ellen White wrote, TSB 62. Remember, your character is being photographed by the great master artist in the record books of heaven. As minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist, what do the books of heaven say in your case? Are you conforming your character to the pattern Jesus Christ? Are you washing your robes of character and making them white in the blood of the Lamb? Or this one, Testimonies of Ministers 429. Every passing hour of the, of the present is shaping our future life. These moments spent in carelessness and self-pleasing, as if no value are deciding our everlasting destinies. The words we utter today will go on echoing when time shall be no more. The deeds done today are transferred to the books of heaven, just as the features are transferred by the artist onto the polished plate. They will determine our destiny for eternity, for bliss or eternal loss and agonizing remorse. Character cannot be changed when Christ comes, nor just as a man is about to die. Character must be done in this life. Character building must be done in this life. What is the relation? You heard deeds in this one. What is the relation between deeds and character? It, it, do you hear this through the imperial law? Okay, the deeds, the bad behaviors, it's a legal thing, we have a courtroom, we're looking over the history, of, and there's a legal punter. Or do you hear deeds through design law? From the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Good man brings forth good of the good stored up in it. Deeds are manifestations of character. And, and further, are, are deeds only manifestations of character? Or do deeds reinforce And further develop a character in either line. So this is out of Desire of Ages 323. The words are an indication of that which is in the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. But words are more than an indication of character. They have power to react on the character. Men are influenced by their own words, often under a momentary impulse prompted by Satan. They give utterance to jealousy or evil surmising, expressing that which they do not really believe. But the expression reacts on the thoughts. They are deceived by their words and come to believe that which was spoken at Satan's instigation. Having once expressed an opinion or decision, they are often too proud to retract it and try to prove themselves in the right until they come to believe that they are. It is dangerous to utter words of doubt, dangerous to question and criticize divine light. The habit of careless and irrelevant criticism reacts upon the character. Do we see a principle being described here? It's not simply a legal behavioral deed issue. It's an issue of character. The way we live reveals our character, but it also reinforces our developing character. So back to the question of the records in heaven and what's actually stored there. What happens to a person when they die? Body turns to dust. Life energy goes to God. Your individuality, your soul, your personhood, your identity, your character safely stored on the heavenly servers. And so Paul, brilliantly the Bible, Paul 2,000 years ago, how could he get it right? How could someone with no knowledge of modern technology and information science get this right? But notice what he writes in Thessalonians, first Thessalonians 4. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that an Adventists have always ignored this next phrase. They've always kind of over it, and they jump to the next part because they love the next part, but they don't like this part. Okay. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we which are alive will be caught up together with them in the air. Did you notice that the very same dead, the righteous dead, who arise out of the ground are also coming down out of heaven with Christ? Did you notice that? And in what state does Paul describe they are in when they're coming down out of heaven with Christ? God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. What state are they in? See, if your data is on the server, on the cloud right now, what state is it in? It's dormant. It's just sitting there, waiting to be downloaded to a new machine with energy to interact and work again. So you're saying that's when he brings the breath of life back to those that are At the resurrection. So at the resurrection, they get new hardware, their individuality is downloaded, and the breath of life breathes in and they live again. This is the resurrection. Three parts. It's beautiful. Absolutely accurate. Same all coming into town. Then, now stay with me. Are you all with me still? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is why Jesus could say, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So your body may die, may stop running, may go to, to dust, but your soul, your individuality, your identity, see, it's not dead. It's just dormant. It's sleeping. It's waiting to be downloaded to live again. The righteous may sleep, but they never die. Did you see a connection now with this, what I just described? Do you see the connection? I'm hoping you do, but I'm going to walk you through it. The connection with what I've just described and the investigative judgment and removing sins from the sanctuary. Do you see the connection? When Jesus raises the righteous dead at the first resurrection... Will they arise at the resurrection, at the second coming that we just read about from Paul? Will the righteous dead come up out of the ground sinful and defective or perfect and sinless? Obviously Obviously perfect and sinless. Did all the righteous dead through history die in perfect sinlessness? Or did they die trusting in Jesus but still struggling with defects in their character. So will they arise with those same defects? (laughs) Will they arise with those same defects? Will the thief on the cross who found salvation in Christ arise with the heart of a thief longing to steal? Yes or no? no? Will Martin Luther, the great reformer, who held staunch hatred of the Jews, arise hating the Jews and longing to kill them? Or will he rise with love in his heart for the Jews? Will he arise he was an alcoholic too, for those who don't know? Will he arise an alcoholic, or will he arise free of his alcoholism? Then would something need to happen in, in these saved souls, psyches, software, data sets before the resurrection. So that at the moment of the resurrection, their previous evil habits, selfish natures, addictive tendencies, and other lusts would be completely gone. All residual defects gone. Could we describe this process as healing, cleansing, or removing sins? Could we describe it that way? And from where are the sins being removed? From the individualities, the characters of the sleeping people who have trusted Jesus and they're receiving his perfection so that when they arise, they're perfected. Ellen White describes it this way, it says to the Church, page 214, We believe without a doubt that Christ is coming soon. This is not a fable to us, it is a reality. When he comes, he will not cleanse us of our sins to remove from us the defects of our character, or to cure us of the infirmities of our tempers and dispositions. If wrought for us at all, this work will all be accomplished before that time. Do you see how the penal substitution lie deceives people into a, f- a form of godliness with no power and keeps them trapped in sin. Because it teaches people they cannot be renewed now. They can only be declared to be legally justified or righteous, even though they're not. They will perpetuate in a, in a character, in a mindset, in a heart that is just as corrupt, but they have Jesus legally applied in a record book somewhere, but no real change is happening in them. It's a cr- huge corruption. So our souls, our individualities, are safe and secure in heaven, on the heavenly servers, And what's another metaphor the Bible uses besides record books for where we find the souls? Under the altar, which is the sanctuary. Using the beautiful symbols of Revelation, let's read this same Revelation again. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, sanctuary, the souls, individualities, identities, data sets, of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out to the Lord, how long, sovereign Lord, how long, holy and true, until you judge, judge, investigative judgment, the inhabitants of the earth and avenge the blood. Then, then, what's that mean? At that time in history, then, when the judgment happens, when he's, going to the altar in the sanctuary, opening the data sets of the individualities. Then, at that time, each was given a white robe. What's a white robe metaphorical of? Purity Purity of character. The character of Christ at that time in history. And they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow saints and brothers who would be killed for the faith were completed, i.e., cleansing of the living on earth, preparing them to meet Christ face to face. So we could describe this process as a cleansing of the sanctuary. Jesus, our heavenly high priest, is opening every individual record and examining it closely, and for all those who have trusted him, he removes the sins from their accounts, which means this. He examines in detail the stored data, code, that constitutes every person, soul, and for those who have trusted him, he removes all damaged code all elements of selfishness, all tendencies to sin, and writes in his perfection. The cleansing of the sanctuary is the cleansing of individualities. And Ellen White connects this cleansing of the temple, the 1844 Daniel 814 message, with Malachi 1, 3, 1 through 3. This is out of Great Controversy, page 426. The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view by Daniel 8.14. Is there any question about what she's talking about here? No, this is the 2300 day prophecy. Daniel 8.14, which all Adventists teach entered in 1844. This, the coming of Christ, our high priest, the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary, brought to be by Daniel 8.14. The coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days as presented in Daniel 7.13 and the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi are descriptions of the same event. The same event. And this is also represented by the coming of the bridegroom to the marriage described by Christ in the parable of the ten virgins. In 1844, Christ began his final work in cleansing the heavenly sanctuary, i.e. the data sets, the souls of all who have trusted him from the residual elements of sinfulness that were still in their characters or their hearts when they died. So they arise in sinless perfection. But why wait till 1844? What's so special about that? Why wait? Why didn't he just do this starting in 8033 when he ascended into heaven? Why wait? Because Jesus needs to not only perfect the data sets of all who died trusting in him, but to actually perfect the data sets of all the living who trust in him. He has to have a people who actually comprehend the truth sufficiently to expunge the lies in their living hearts and minds, as described above, and Satan counterattacked the work of Christ after the cross. It wasn't until 1844 that enough truth had been recovered for the living to embrace and participate in the healing work. You see, after Christ's victory at the cross, Satan's man of sin, the little horn power, as described by both Paul and Daniel wages war against God's people by attacking the truth about God. The evil power advances its assault on God's character by changing people's perception. Here's the critical thing, guys, of God's law. It replaces the truth of God's design law with human imposed imperial law constructs. The little horn power man of sin thereby sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 and all, all the world goes into an age of darkness. All Christians begin worshiping a God who functions like a Caesar, who makes rules, who's a source of inflicted pain and suffering, from whom we need to be protected. And we completely pervert the cross, not as a means for Christ to heal and restore and renew us, but as the mechanism whereby to placate an angry and wrathful God. And thus we end up worshiping Baal rather than Jesus. The little horn power, according to scripture, win, is winning the war. He's winning the war until an event happens, described in Daniel 7.22. Until the Ancient of Days takes his seat and judgment is given to the saints. Judgment, discernment, understanding is given to us. We actually comprehend the truth that God is not an imperial dictator. He is the creator God. And looking down the corridors of time, God tells his friend Daniel, 490 years remain for your people to be the avenue for which Messiah will come. In the middle of that last week of their mission, the Messiah will complete his mission and put an end to all the symbolic ceremonial stuff by actually becoming the source of salvation for all who uh, uh, believe in him and follow him. But the little horn power is going to arise, Daniel. After the the Messiah completes his mission, a little horn power is going to arise, and he's going to oppose and blaspheme everything that's God, and he's going to make war against the saints, and he's going to set himself up in God's temple, and they're going to come to worship this little horn power because they're going to worship an imperial dictator. And it won't be 2,300 years, Daniel, until enough truth is recovered for the sanctuary to be cleansed. And there's a message, Revelation chapter 14, the eternal gospel is to go. And this message is precise in its its calling. It is calling people at this time in history to be in awe of our creator God to glorify him as we live his character in our lives, the character of love, truth, liberty, and how we practice methods, so we don't get government to coerce people with imperial laws. And we call people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and found fountains of water. We call people back to designer, stop this imperialistic dictator worship thing, reject this Roman law construct. This whole perspective I'm teaching you is developed in our new pamphlet that we're releasing today called A New Paradigm About the Heavenly Sanctuary, Investigated Judgment, and Why the Seventh-day Adventist Church Has Languished for 150 Years. And it's developed in here and laid out very with great references and precision. And then there's several addendum that we have for you to review. Several addendums for you to review, and I want you to review the addendums. Well, second addendum particularly, because the second addendum has some quotes that those who prefer the legal language will like to say, Oh, but here I had a great controversy. In fact, maybe I'll share some of that with you. Because in, in, in the black is the quote from the great controversy, and the red is the design law explanation of what it actually means. A couple of these quotes. So you can read and study this for yourself this week. I've got a hundred of them here. I want you each to take one. Go home, study it. Next week in class, we start at 10 a.m. for our regular study. At 11 a.m., we're going to open it up for questions on this issue. On this issue. So, But, but I don't want to do questions until you've had time to actually study all week yourself. And if you're online, this is posted online 15 minutes ago. It went live online, so you can actually digitally read this online today. And you can study, and if you have questions, then you email us your questions this week at, at topics at comeandreason.com. We will bring those questions in next week, and we will answer questions on this issue next week. But I can tell you, and then there's a call to action in here. If you love this, if you see the truth of it, if you embrace it and want to share it, we're asking all of our Adventist friends... In English-speaking countries, okay, Uh, they're available in the U.S. right now. To, To ask for 50 of these, we'll mail you a box of 50, and you hand 50 out to 50 Adventist friends. If you're in Australia, South Africa, Canada, our teams there are in the process of printing these up. They will be available soon, and if you want some to share, you just email us. We'll send these free to any of those countries. But we want you to, first off, though, don't share anything until you read it you understand it, you come to the place that you believe it and say, yeah, this is what I think is the truth. I want to share this. We will send these to you for free so you can share them. And there's other action, call to action stuff in there as well. But that, do that this week. And we've got these for you after class. Let me just share one of those quotes with you or maybe two so, so you can get a sense of how people, how you can deal with this. This is out of Great Controversy 420. It says, Important truths concerning the atonement are taught by the typical service. A substitute was accepted in the sinner's stead, but the sin was not canceled by the blood of the victim. Do you hear that through design law? You hear it through what I was just teaching. Well, here's the here, uh, imperial law, or what I was teaching. Here's the, here's the design law view. The defective, the defect in the individuality of the sinner, our defects, were not canceled by the perfect righteousness of Jesus. His victory didn't cancel our struggles. The victory of Jesus still needs to be applied to the individuality of the sinner in order to remove from the sinner the defects of character and write in the perfection of Christ. A means was provided by which it was transferred to the sanctuary. The sanctuary is a metaphor for the place where the souls and individualities of the sinners are kept ultimately and ultimately cleansed. The record books is another metaphor by the offering of blood the sinner acknowledged the authority of the law confessed his guilt in transgression and expressed his desire for pardon through faith in the redeemer to come but he has not yet but he was not yet entirely released from the condemnation of the law through the act of offering the blood we acknowledge our own infection with sin our terminal state a desire to be healed and restored we acknowledge that god is trustworthy and that jesus is sinless and he is the solution for our terminal condition and and there's a parenthetical statement here in my note, Uh, at the end of the addendum are documents showing that pardon is not actually extended until your heart is transformed. It's all about transformation of heart. We We are not entirely released from the condemnation of the law because the law condemns everything that is out of harmony with it, like the laws of health condemn everything that's not healthy. Thus, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. And until the individual sinner has had the work of cleansing done in their individuality to eliminate all defects by Jesus in the sanctuary, they are still out of harmony with God's design law. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest, having taken an offering from the congregation, went into the most holy place with the blood of of this offering and sprinkled it upon the mercy seat directly over the law to make satisfaction for its claims. The law claims or requires perfection. That is, we become sinless, because it is the law upon which life is built. Thus the blood is sprinkled seven times, is representing the truth and life of Jesus being written into the soul's individualities of those who have died and trust in Jesus, so that all defects of sin are removed and they are purified to rise in sinless perfection of not only body, but also mind, heart, attitude, and character. Then in his character of mediator, he took the sins upon himself and bore them from the sanctuary. As our substitute, he not not only did Jesus take our sinful condition upon himself, developed a perfect character, but he expunges expunging the carnal desires. Now, as our high priest in heaven, he removes the remnant defects of each trusting soul and places the responsibility back on Satan, the author of the rebellion. And then, one page later. As anciently the sins of the people were by faith placed on the sin offering and through its blood transferred in figure to the earthly sanctuary, so in the new covenant the sins of the repentant are by faith placed upon Christ and transferred in fact to the heavenly sanctuary. Meaning? Through Jesus we have reconnection with the Father and heaven. It is through placing our trust in Jesus that we have hope of salvation and thereby our names, characters, individualities, souls... Are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thus, those who put their trust in Jesus have their souls' individualities safely transferred to the sanctuary of God. They become part of the living stones that make up the temple of God, but because they died in, as sinners, not all defects were removed. Thus, their residual sinfulness, selfishness, lust, earthly desires, were still in their souls and also transferred to the sanctuary. Because they have trusted in Jesus, he has access to their souls, individualities, and does for them that which they cannot do for themselves. During the investigative judgment, while they're asleep, he removes all residual defects from those who trust in him, etc., etc. And he goes on. Yes. As a nurse, you know I would compare it to, you, you sign an operative permit before you're put under anesthesia. And while you're under anesthesia, the physician corrects whatever's wrong in surgery, which you've previously given. If you didn't give him your permission, he couldn't do that. And and the, and the article actually goes more into that principle and why God can't do this and the evidence that he doesn't do this, Christ doesn't do this, for those who don't trust in him and why. I want to jump to Sunday's lesson because there's another metaphor that's actually not in the article that actually says the same thing, and it's in Sunday's lesson, the wedding supper of the Lamb. When does the wedding supper take place? When does the wedding take place? Well first a paragraph in the lesson says, Two thousand years ago Christ left his heavenly home to invite his followers uh, to a wedding supper that will take place after the marriage to his bride. The marriage represents the reception of Christ of his kingdom, the holy city, the New Jerusalem, is called the bride of Christ, the Lamb's wife. In the revelation, the people of God are said to be the guests at the marriage revelation, at the marriage supper. Uh, If guests, they cannot also be represented by the bride in that particular parable. To whom is Christ married? And Revelation does say that uh, here's the bride, the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. This is the bride. To whom is Christ married? If you say the new Jerusalem, does that mean he gets married to a piece of cinder block, um, a piece of uh, gold? Gold is more valuable. than, than so, so inanimate matter. He's, matter, he's, he's marrying himself to, to inanimate matter. Is that, is that what, what he's marrying himself to? Or does the new Jerusalem symbolically rep, represent something else? similarities between the most holy place and the new jerusalem have you ever noticed they're actually just metaphors for the same thing what's the shape of the most holy place Cube. what's the shape of the new jerusalem Cube. what's the most holy place covered in gold. what's the new jerusalem paved in gold, gold. Uh, in what condition are the people of god in relation to god in the most holy place Where, what do they experience there in the most holy place. At one mint. That's what they experience with God in the most holy place. They come into one mint. And what condition are the saved in the New Jerusalem with God? They live at one with God. Um, where does God dwell in the Old Testament sanctuary? Where's his dwelling place? The most holy place. Where does God dwell in Revelation? It says the dwelling place of God is the New Jerusalem. Uh, the high priest cleanses the most holy place and God, the whole, our high priest cleanses the hearts and minds of the saved. Yeah. So prior to the coming of Christ, he receives his kingdom, which is primarily concerned with objects or people. And now think this through with me. When a wedding occurs, what is actually the prime core aspects, elements, actions, functions that are to take place at a wedding? The union, of the union of two people, which two become one, one and we could call that at one. one mint, which happens where? In the most holy place. So Christ is receiving the new Jerusalem, which is the most holy place, which is where unity happens. So we could consider that receiving of his kingdom, the wedding, for which we're guests, Because we're not actually consciously aware, for those who have died in Christ, is Christ bringing into perfection, or at one, unifying to him in his heart, all those who have put their trust in him. In other words, it's the cleansing of their data sets, their individualities, their characters. He is bringing his church perfect as a bride for her husband. A lot more stuff that's in the notes that we're not going to get to today. I'm just going to stop there. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are amazing. You're beautiful. Your design for life and reality is perfect, flawless. But we're flawed. But Jesus is perfect and flawless. And he has achieved everything. The truth that wins us to trust, expose Satan as a liar and fraud, And a perfect character that you offer freely as a gift to us. And we ask that your Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth and love, will set our minds free from this penal legal lie that has infected the world, this thing that intoxicates the whole world, such that the world lives in fear of you and thinks that you're the source of pain and suffering and death. We ask that the Spirit of truth will come and win us to trust. And as our hearts open, that the perfection of Christ will be restored and we will be brought into oneness with you, unity with you, restored to be your people, so that this time in earth's history, that we can be that people who can take this message to the world so that we can see you coming, Lord. We pray in your holy name. Amen.